Amen. That's a beautiful song, isn't it? One that emphasizes the sanctity of human life as well as the significance of our spiritual life in Christ. I will honor Him, for this I know. I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. Uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a, with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And today's text in 1 Timothy chapter 4 can help us do just that. So please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Our text is verses 6 to 10 today. It's on page 933 in your pew Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. The theme of this text is train yourself for godliness. A command that comes directly to us in verse 7. Train yourself for godliness. You might recall if you were with us last week that in verses 1 to 5 of this chapter, Paul draws a sharp contrast between bad doctrine and our benevolent God. Uh, Paul shows us that false teachers forbid the good things that God created for our enjoyment. Uh, Such restrictions may make a person feel more righteous or holy or acceptable to God, but this teachings from the pit of hell. And Paul calls them the teachings of demons because they misrepresent God as being a merely prohibitive God, a restrictive God, a stingy God, instead of a God that is incredibly gracious and kind to his creation. Such diabolical doctrine draws people away from Christ and kills their joy. Instead of prohibiting the good things that God has created for our enjoyment, we are actually to take pleasure in them and to thank God for them. Well, Paul then writes to Timothy these words in the next set of verses. 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance." For to this end, or for this reason, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. A great portion of Scripture. May we give it our utmost attention this morning. Here in this passage, Paul tells Timothy what to do and why. Train yourself for godliness because it benefits you both today and and forever. Train yourself for godliness. Why? Because it benefits you today and forever. In verses 6 to 10, Paul lays out the measure of godliness, the mandate for godliness, and then the motivation for godliness. If you find yourself in a spiritual slump, I pray that this text today will rejuvenate you, and I believe it will. 
if you listen to what the Holy Spirit of God says to you through his word. And if you're feeling uh, spiritually fit, you feel like you're in a really good season of your life and your walk with the Lord, I pray that this text would encourage you not to plateau, but to keep pushing yourself forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and pull others along with you. That is the great need of the church at all times. So let's look at first the measure of godliness. The measure of godliness. This comes to us in verse 6 where Paul appeals directly to Timothy as the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. If you, Timothy, put these things before the brothers, it could say brothers and sisters, then you, Timothy, will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Now what things is Paul referring to? Well, he's referring to the critical matters he had just talked about in the previous verses. He's referring to the declaration regarding Jesus' supremacy and his denunciation of false doctrine in verses 1 to 5. Timothy is to put these things before believers. He is to continue to do that. In other words, these teachings regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, his supremacy, his person and work, this denunciation of false teachings, these things that Christians can be prone to if they are not alert to. Timothy is to continually put these things before the believers. In the teaching ministry of the church, these things are not to be put on the shelf. They are not to be put on the back burner. They are to be placed constantly before God's people. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the warning against false doctrine is not a one-and-done kind of thing in the church of Jesus Christ. There is a constant need for the pastor to put these things before the people. Elsewhere in Paul's pastoral epistles, he writes to pastors, remind them, remind them, remind God's people of these things that they already know, but they need to be reminded of constantly. And Paul often did this reminding himself. In his letter to the church at Corinth, he said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. In his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Likewise, Peter wrote in his epistles, writing to believers, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think, as long, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of a reminder. And so there's this constant appeal in the New Testament epistles for pastors to remind God's people of the gospel, to remind them, to warn them against false doctrine, or the apostles do this directly in their letters to the churches. The apostles did this because they want God's people to keep on going in the gospel and to keep on growing in the scriptures. And so Paul tells Timothy here in chapter 4, if you, Timothy, put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. So keep on exalting Christ. Keep on exposing false teaching, Timothy, and you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Then he says this, 
you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, second half of the verse, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Um, the word for trained in verse 6 is actually different from the word trained in verse 7, which we'll get to. The word trained for here in verse 6 is an intensified form of the Greek verb trepho, which means to feed or to nourish. So Timothy, by constantly preaching the gospel to God's people, by constantly warning them against false doctrine, by constantly making sure that they are established in the faith, Timothy himself, as a pastor, as a teacher, he himself will be constantly nourished in the faith that he needs to for his own spiritual walk with Christ. He will be constantly nourished in the gospel in good doctrine. Now we know from Paul's second letter to Timothy, which immediately follows 1 Timothy, a book that we'll be studying in another couple of months after we're done with this book. In that letter, we know from Paul's writing to Timothy, that Timothy had known God's word since childhood, perhaps even since infancy, having been nourished in the faith by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. We see that in the introductory paragraphs in Paul's second letter to Timothy. Later on in that same letter, Paul exhorts Timothy, but as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I've been uh, reading, or actually rereading this past week, Kevin DeYoung's book, Taking God at His Word. In the final chapter of that book, Kevin uh, raises this passage and emphasizes the importance of sticking with Scripture. In the words of Paul, to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And Kevin talks about a conference panel that he was a part of where where someone directed a question to John Piper, a a well-known pastor, author, theologian, and asked him on this panel discussion, why did you conclude inerrancy is true? In other words, what caused you to conclude that the Bible is without error? And the first thing out of This incredible theologian's mouth, this wonderful author, surprised everyone. Piper's answer was, because my mama told me it's true. Because my mama told me it's true. Now that may strike you as simplistic, but listen to what Kevin DeYoung goes on to say. Kevin writes, and I quote, That wasn't a throwaway line or a glib remark crafted for effect. Piper was capturing something deeply true in many of our lives and deeply biblical. It's not necessarily a sign of growth to move past the faith of your childhood and not necessarily a weakness to believe the same thing throughout your whole life. What an inestimable privilege to be acquainted from childhood with the sacred writings. The ultimate reason for Timothy to stick with Scripture goes far beyond Lois and Eunice. But at their feet is where he first learned to trust the word of God, which is no small thing, and it's not to be tossed aside for anything in the world. 
The purpose of Holy Scripture is not ultimately to make you smart or to make you relevant, to make you rich or to get you a job, or get you married or take all your problems away or tell you where to live. The aim is that you might be wise enough to put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Nothing else in all the world has this ability. End quote. You know, as I read that, I thank God for Christian parents who nourished me in God's word from the time of my infancy, who also brought me to church where I could continue to feed and be nourished on the word of God in a community of believers just like this. If your children sitting here, and I see some of you out here, teens, young adults, and even adults my age and older, don't ever take that privilege for granted. Don't take God's word for granted. Being taught it in your home, having it preached and taught here in a community of believers, believe God's word. Build your life on God's word. Put your faith in Jesus Christ to whom all scripture points. Look to him and be saved. Believe that he died for your sins and rose again for your justification. Recognize that you were bought with a price, that you are not your own, you belong to the Lord. Recognize that this price you were bought with was the precious blood of God's own Son who loved you and gave himself for you. Make your life count for God. Stick with Scripture. Embrace God's truth and never let it go. That's what makes a good servant of Jesus Christ. Whether one is standing in the pulpit or sitting in the pew. One who feeds on God's word and follows it. That's what Paul tells Timothy. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained or being fed, nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed so a good servant of jesus christ is not only one who feeds on the word but follows the word who not only knows the word but he lives the word who not only preaches the word but practices what he preaches and puts these things before the brothers puts these things regularly before his brothers and sisters in christ fellow believers that is the measure of of godliness. John MacArthur says, a pastor's heart is not measured by how good a man is at petting sheep, but by how well he protects them from wolves and feeds them so that they can be mature and strong. That's the measure of godliness. And that takes us to the next verse and the next point, the mandate for godliness. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths Rather, train yourself for godliness. So the first half of the verse is the negative command, what not to do. The second half of the verse is the positive command, what to do. New Testament scholar Robert, Robert Yarbrough says that the modern equivalent of irreverent silly myths, what the New International Version calls old wives' tales, would be conspiracy theories so-called urban legends, 
and endless issue-oriented and often polemical blogs and websites from which most pastors find it wise to recuse themselves, end quote. And I agree, huge waste of time and mental energy, not just for pastors, but for believers in general. Paul says, have nothing to do with this time-wasting, mind-wasting, meaningless stuff. Put them away, the verb means. Reject them. Your mind is a terrible thing to waste. And if we are to love God's God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then don't muddle your mind with meaningless stuff. Saturate it with Scripture and be able to see life as God does. The positive command, of course, rather, train yourself for godliness. That's the positive command. That word train is different from the word for train in verse 6. The word train for here in verse 7 where it says, rather train yourself for godliness, is the Greek word gunadzo, from which we get our English word gymnasium. It literally means to exercise naked. Only men were allowed to enter the gymnasium. And yes, Ephesus had a gymnasium. I'll mention that in just a moment. And they would work out either naked or wearing only a loincloth. And I thought, man, I thought people today were scantily clad when they worked out. But they did this in order to enjoy an unhindered range of motion. And of course, workout clothes are a lot different today. They really didn't have the equivalent in the first century. But I thought of Paul's words, or uh, the author of Hebrew, which may have been Paul, words in chapter 12 where it talks about laying aside every weight in the sin that so easily besets us. So why? So that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. Strip ourselves of anything that would weigh us down. And, and that's what they did in the gymnasium. Every Greek city had its gymnasium and Ephesus was no exception. It actually wound up having four gymnasiums and the best preserved one is the theater gymnasium, which was built in the second century. So less than a hundred years after this letter was written to Timothy, and this is the best preserved gymnasium. You can see the theater there in the background and the gymnasium up front. The palestra, or the place of exercise, was an open field. It was about the three quarters of the size of a football field, and it was surrounded on three sides by marble-covered columns. And where the palestra joined the main building, um, there were seats, rows of seats, where spectators could watch the men exercising there in the field. There was a great emphasis in Greco-Roman culture on physical training and winning athletic events. Of course, we here in America would know nothing of that sort of thing, would we? The thrill of victory. Uh, no one succeeds at the highest level of sport without working out. That's been true for millennia. And so now, yes, in a positive way, I'm going to mention the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> they did not make it to the playoffs by wishing themselves there. Oh yes, I'm sure they wished that they were in the playoffs, but they also worked hard, didn't they? In fact, one could say that of all the teams in the playoffs, that much of their victories were won, in a sense, months ago when they put themselves through a rigorous training regimen. 
stretching themselves to the utmost physically, mentally, emotionally, and even relationally. They were in a program that was designed to develop and improve their strength, their speed, their endurance, to maximize their potential individually and also as a team. Well, the same is true spiritually when it comes to the Word of God. It is meant to develop us, to build up our faith, and to strengthen our commitment to Christ. As Paul bade farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, a passage we've looked at a number of times because that speech of Paul's, that farewell speech, took place about four to five years before he wrote this letter, the last time Paul ever saw these people, as far as we know. He said this as he bid them farewell. He said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And then Paul writes this letter to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus. Paul also writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. And there you might remember in chapter 4, Paul talks about how the teaching and preaching of God's word equips the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you want to get spiritually fit? Do you want to build yourself up spiritually? Do you want to build up others spiritually? Then train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. When Paul says, train yourself, he is laying the responsibility right at Timothy's feet. You must train yourself for godliness. Somebody can give you the equipment, they can lay out a program, they can come alongside and encourage you, but in the end, you must make it an act of your will to choose that you will engage the rigorous training process of becoming a godly man or woman. A month ago, I approached six young men in our congregation and challenged them to participate in the gospel leadership cohort, an intense discipleship training program that I designed to help them pursue godliness, which Jerry Bridges defines, I think rightly so, as devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. It's loving God with all your heart. It's becoming like God because you love him so much and you want to follow him. This discipleship program involves 20 training sessions together, plus an additional five to six hours a week that consists of memorizing scripture, preparing and teaching devotionals, reading the Bible through in this year, along with 18 other books that are designed to challenge their spiritual development, their biblical theology, their convictional leadership, their spiritual growth, their understanding of church life and ministry. It is not for the faint of heart, but I praise the Lord that all six men committed themselves to doing this. And I want this program to continue. Now you might listen to something like that and say, well, I I can't do that. And you know what? That's okay. You don't have to enter a discipleship regimen that is that intense. Just as physical training programs like CrossFit have all different levels that are meant to meet a person at his or her level of proficiency so that they can progress to the next level, even so there are goals that we can set, 
disciplines that we can undertake that are geared to our current stage of spiritual growth, but are designed to strengthen us, to build us up, to push us forward toward that goal of godliness, that goal of Christ-likeness, so that I might better love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. My youngest son called me from Tennessee the other day and uh, was telling me about his fitness goals and workout program. He didn't know I was preaching on his verse. He just likes to talk about how fit he is. Um, And then he asked how I was doing. And I paused and I told him, well, you know, there were the holidays and then I was sick for a couple weeks. And son, I said, the bottom line is I I haven't really worked out for a few months and so my body is naturally assuming it's Grinch-like physique. (laughs) How the Grinch stole Christmas, just look at him, yep. Small up top, bigger down here, and it's just, you know, and I found this. I do not have to work out. I do not have to work hard to get out of shape. Have you ever noticed that? I don't have to work at all to get out of shape, but boy, I have to work hard to get in shape or to get back into shape. Why would we think it would be any different spiritually? D.A. Carson wrote this, and these are pointed, sobering words. He said, and I quote, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delighting themselves in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. End quote. Bottom line, let's stop making excuses. Let's stop rationalizing. Let's stop being satisfied with the status quo and start putting the same effort into our spiritual life that we do into other areas of our lives. No one excels in sports or in fitness without working out. No one becomes a good musician without lots of practice. No one excels in academic scholarship without years of hard study. And no one becomes godly without immersing himself or herself in the scriptures, devoting themselves to prayer, stripping themselves of sin, extending themselves in service to others, and sacrificing themselves and their resources for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, progress always comes at a price. We know this. But training today means victory tomorrow. And all the Bills fans said, amen. Well, we don't know. Maybe today. But spiritually, we know that's true. Training today brings victory tomorrow. And that takes us to the final point, the motivation for godliness. In verses 8 to 10, Paul compares the benefits of physical fitness with spiritual fitness. Look at verse 8. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
The benefits of physical exercise are many. If I were to ask you um, just spontaneously, what are some benefits of physical exercise? My guess is that we would immediately hear half a dozen, a dozen or more answers just like that. Some of the things I wrote down right away, uh, the benefits of physical exercise. It helps you manage your weight. It boosts your mood. It sharpens your thinking. It reduces the risk of disease. It strengthens your bones and muscles. It improves your ability to perform everyday activities. It reduces your risk of injury. Yes, it is certainly true that bodily exercise, bodily training is of some value. Scripture says that. Scripture says our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and we are to glorify God in our body. And some of you take that very seriously, which is good. We should monitor, uh, monitor, uh, monitor our diet. We should make sure that we're exercising or staying active. We need to take steps to be good stewards of our body because it brings benefits to us in the here and now. And Scripture acknowledges that. Scripture extols that. But godliness is of value in every way. Godliness is of value in every way. In other words, it has unlimited benefits. It produces genuine joy, real contentment, positive outlook, healthy relationships, spiritual guidance in any given situation, Godward confidence, the right kind of confidence, and a whole lot more. All the fruit of the Spirit, Bob Lelio preached on just a couple weeks ago. And the best part is that godliness promises benefits not only in this life, but also in the life to come. Christians have the best of both worlds, Phil Riken reminds us. He says, when it comes to Christian character, you really can take it with you because godliness lasts forever. And this makes spiritual training much more valuable than physical training. And Paul used a similar analogy when he wrote to the church at Corinth saying, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. We could talk about athletics. We could talk about music, drama, the fine arts. We could talk about uh, uh, academics, excelling in your field. We could talk about career. In so many fields, we, we, we earn a prize, we earn a reward, we reach a goal, we uh, achieve our dream in many ways by working hard for it, by being disciplined. And Paul is saying, People in this life do it to win a prize. They do it to achieve certain goals, certain accolades. He says, but we do it for an eternal prize, an eternal reward that will never fade away, that will never get tarnished, that will never get lost, that will never cease to mean something. And after making this sort of point here in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, he accentuates it by saying, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. It's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That godliness is of value in every way. Now Paul has used that expression already in this letter, hasn't he? That this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. It was back in chapter 1, verse 15, where he made this statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says that is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. And now the second time he uses it is here in 1 Timothy 4, which interestingly still has to do with the saving power of Jesus Christ. He says, verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Then he says in verse 10, for to this end or for this reason, we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Both statements have to do with Jesus saving sinners. 1 Timothy 4.10, that word toil, is the Greek word kopiao. It means to labor to the point of exhaustion. And if you have ever really extenuated yourself in a physical workout, you know what that means. You push yourself to the point of exhaustion. Do you pursue godliness with that kind of intensity? Paul says we do. The word strive. He says when we toil and strive, the word strive is the Greek verb agonizomai, from which we get our English word agonize. It means to engage in a struggle. A lot of times it was the wrestling event, to engage in a struggle in order to win the prize. Whether it was in an athletic contest or in a military context, you wanted to win, so you went all out and you struggled against any opposition that came against you in order to overcome it and achieve your goal. Years ago, I solicited the help of a Christian consultant who had worked for John MacArthur, the pastor of Grace Community Church out in California, had been there 55 years. He's the author of the award-winning John MacArthur Study Bible, the 34-volume commentary on the New Testament, and 150 other books that he has edited or authored. And uh, this consultant told me, having worked closely with John MacArthur for a few years, said he is the most disciplined man I have ever met. And I don't doubt that. And so when John MacArthur says something, I listen up, especially when it comes to discipline. And MacArthur says... In commenting on this passage, quote, ministers are engaged in eternal work with the destiny of men's souls at stake. The urgency of that work drives them on through weariness, loneliness, and struggle, end quote. And then he quotes J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, who wrote, quote, if a man is unwilling to pay the price of fatigue for his leadership, it will always be mediocre, True leadership always exacts a heavy toll on the whole man, and the more effective the leadership is, the higher the price to be paid. End quote. And I thought immediately, isn't Christ Jesus the ultimate example of that? Is he not the ultimate leader who paid the ultimate price for the benefit of his people? And that's what propelled Paul forward. Let me read verse 10 again. For to this end, or for this reason, we toil and strive. We labor, we agonize, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let me close with a few key observations. Number one, do you notice Paul shifts from the second person singular to the first person plural? 
He's been telling Timothy, you put these things before their brethren and you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Timothy, you train yourself for godliness. But now at the end, he tells Timothy, hey, it is for this reason that we toil and strive. We labor and agonize because Paul knows that Timothy is doing this. Paul is, uh, is encouraging Timothy. He's appealing to Timothy. He is motivating Timothy to continue in their direction. He knows that Timothy has already been going. And Paul tells Timothy, brother, you are not in this alone. I am with you. I am laboring right along beside you. I may not be physically present with you. I'm with you in spirit. We toil and strive together. We are co-laborers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that this ministry can wear you out, but I am laboring to the point of exhaustion too. I know that you're wrestling with a lot of issues in the church, with a lot of the temptations that every person faces, but I want you to know that I'm right in the battle with you, and we together will press on. Like any effective leader, Paul is not calling on Timothy to make any sacrifice that Paul himself is not willing to make. Second observation, this all-out effort is sustained by a firmly placed hope. Can I say the obvious? The Bills and no other playoff team are 100% absolutely certain, or at least don't have grounds for that, that they'll win the next game let alone the Super Bowl. Indeed, there will only be one team left standing when it's all over. All that effort they pour into it, yes, there are temporal benefits for it. But when Paul goes all out for the gospel, when he would one day give his very life for the sake of Jesus Christ, Paul will know that that all-out effort would never be in vain. Doesn't he say that at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the second to the last chapter, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This all-out effort is sustained by a firmly placed hope. Paul's confidence is in whom? Look at the verse. Where is his confidence? It's in the living God, not a dead Savior. He's the living God. And every believer in Jesus Christ has the same hope. We know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that He reigns at God's right hand. We know that we will be delivered on the day of judgment because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And having this assurance, we make every possible effort to go all out in our love for Jesus Christ and in sharing the good news of salvation with all who will listen. We toil and strive. We labor and we agonize to see men, women, and children from every nation hear the gospel and receive the gift of eternal life. That's why we do what we do. The third observation is Jesus truly is the Savior of all people, especially believers. There's no getting around this. As some commentators have sought to kind of change the word of that meeting, especially, which is the word melista in the Greek. But there's no denying it. Jesus is the Savior of all people, but especially believers. It's a, it has to do with the degrees in which one is saved. Let me explain. And I believe the explanation here ties in directly to what Paul has just talked about regarding the temporal benefits 
versus the eternal benefits. Unbelievers are saved in a temporal sense, in this way. God delivers them from death every day. God is the one who puts air in their lungs. God is the one who puts clothes on their back. God is the one who puts a roof over their heads. God is the one who puts food in their stomach. God is the one who puts gladness in their heart. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's true of every human being. And this is God's common grace which is extended to all men and women, boys and girls all over planet Earth, whether or not they acknowledge Him as God, whether or not they express their gratitude to Him as God, whether or not they give thanks for the good things God has given them to enjoy. But the salvation of unbelievers in this temporal sense ends, it comes to a dead stop the minute they breathe their last. It ends when this life is over. Paul writes, the same Paul that wrote that God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe, is the same Paul that writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, listen to this, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. See the difference? Unbelievers are saved or spared in a temporal sense. But judgment day is coming. But for believers, when Jesus returns, we're going to marvel at him. We're going to marvel. Our salvation as believers, at the return of Christ, will continue right on into the next life. It will not only continue on to the next life, it will culminate in the next life because the one who makes all things new is creating a new heaven and a new earth in which nothing but righteousness dwells. No more death, no more sickness, no more disease, no more sin, no, man, no more ruptured relationships, no more brokenness. He says to John, I make all things do. Write this down for these words are faithful and true. We have set our hope on the living God. Have you placed your hope in Him? Our salvation as believers will continue and then culminate in the life to come where God will forever continue to shower His grace and kindness on us in Christ Jesus for the eons of ages to come. It'll never end. It'll only get better and better and better. So train yourself for godliness because it benefits you both today and forever. That's the bottom line. Train yourself for godliness because it benefits you both today and forever. Three quick closing points of application. Because Paul wrote this initially to Timothy as the pastor of the church. I say to myself and my fellow elders here at Webster Bible Church, lead by example. Lead by example. 
fellow elders, go all out in your pursuit of godliness. Make sure that you are nourished in the faith, that you are feeding on the word of God and you are following what you feed on. For it is hypocritical to call other Christians to a commitment that we ourselves are not to make. We should be able to say, as Paul did, be imitators of me as I also am of Jesus Christ. Elders lead by example. Members of Webster Bible Church, follow our example. If we lead by example, follow our example. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This true of church members in relation to their pastors and elders is true of children in relation to their parents. Don't forget those who taught you the word of God. Remember those who, though imperfect, lived a gospel-centered life and pointed you to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Remember them. Remember those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So elders lead by example. Fellow believers follow those examples. And thirdly, to non-Christians, those who have yet to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believe in Him today. That is the Lord's word to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not just temporally, but eternally. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. Put your hope in Him, the living God. He will never disappoint you. Embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you will have everything you need to pursue and to enjoy a God-pleasing life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a powerful, motivating text this is. Thank you for using it to challenge me and my own walk with you. I pray, Lord, that we would not turn a deaf ear to what your Spirit says to the church, that we would not sit back and critique the service or the sermon in a fleshly sense, but we would be noble-minded like the Bereans who open up God's Word and say, are these things true? And if so, then let us pursue godliness. Help us, Lord, to train ourselves for godliness, that we might be built up in you and that we might build up others with us. We pray this in the name of the one who is worthy of all our adoration and praise, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.